This is Teeming with Ideas, the podcast that explores how people at work work together. I'm Carlos Valdez Depena, your host, and I spent decades working with teams as well as researching, writing, and speaking about collaboration. Over the years, I've met some brilliant people, academics, business leaders, managers, consultants, who share my passion for collaboration. In Teeming with Ideas, I'll be speaking with these experts who will share their thoughts, experiences, theories, and practices so that you can put them to work to make your work life richer and more rewarding. Enjoy. So welcome, Ulf, to Teeming with Ideas. I'm so delighted to have you here. Um, Why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to my brilliant listeners, a bit of your background, who you are, and where you are. Okay. Happy to, Carlos, and uh, happy to... uh to be here with you. <clears throat> uh, I, uh, my name is Ulf and I, uh, I'm Danish as uh, background. I uh, grew up in Denmark. I um, now currently I'm the head of HR for uh, AP Müller Mersk, which is a big shipping company. Uh, we have, you will recognize them with the blue, the, bl- the big blue container ships on the oceans. We have 800 of these uh, across the world and carry about 20% of the world's trade uh, on any given day. So it's a, a large and impactful uh, business. Uh, previous to Maersk, I've been here for four years. Previous to Maersk, I was uh, uh, at uh, Mars Incorporated together with you, amongst others, uh, for 28 years. So quite a, quite a while. Uh, and with, with Mars, I lived in Norway, Australia, and uh, 10 years in Tennessee uh, in the US. Wow. And have great, great memories, yes. So I have three kids uh, that are spread a bit around the world. Uh, and I live in, in Copenhagen here, we're working at Musk. So you're a chief human resource officer today. When did you lead your first team? Do you remember your first leadership role? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, I led my first team um, when I became a sales manager for Mars in uh, Norway. And it was eight salespeople in Impulse at the time when you would visit uh, gas stations and kiosks and stuff like that and sell chocolate that was my first team I led reflecting on that now is there a lesson learned or an event that sticks with you there is actually it was quite a forming time of my of life in many ways or or at least career my brother-in-law at this time was a guru within the fast food business he was an American and he was probably 25 years older than me. And just when I got this new job of leading these eight people, he was in Norway visiting and he asked me, so what are you going to measure them on? What's the, what's the goal with this team? And I came up with a lot of things I was going to do with them. You know, I listed off a whole a lot of things. And then he said, no, it's not going to work. You have to focus on three things. There's three things that drive sales with that team. And I'm like, that sounds too simple. And then he gave me the task of, figuring this out overnight and and at breakfast next morning he asked me have you worked it out so i said maybe it's the number of visits each salesperson does and then the number of displays in each store and maybe the number of distribution points of chocolate in each store he said top you're gonna do that for the next two years that's how you measure them and nothing more and i thought that was crazy but i tried it and it worked so wait he asked you to think about it overnight you came up with those three things mm-hmm. and they were exactly right? He didn't really question them so much. He thought they were good enough. And he was just more interested in me having rationalized it. I think they are, they're probably 80% correct. 
But the point was you focus on those three and you do nothing else. That's your job. And getting everybody focused on those three KPIs for the next two years. But the truth is I did it. I really focused on it. And we increased sales week by week by week by week. I have learned that I always now focus on three things that I do. Always. Wow, that's almost a magic number for you, yeah? Mm -hmm, it is. I think the team really got obsessed with these numbers, right? And I think we probably changed one or two of the KPIs over time, of course, but, but the work became easy in some ways because we uncomplicated it by focusing on a very few things that were really instrumental in driving sales. And then we had some fun around it and did a lot of competitions and blah, blah, blah. Right. As you may know about me, I'm a fiend for focus. Let's focus on the few big things that matter most, right? One of the barriers I encounter is people who say, yes, but all these other things matter too. Mm. Certainly, we're going to be held accountable for them. What's the conversation you have with the person who says, yes, but what about these other important numbers? The reason why it's difficult for people, including myself at times, is that it's counterintuitive. It's just not human nature to focus on three things. It, it doesn't make sense that that can really be effective. What I say to people is come up with these one, two, three things that you're going to do. It doesn't mean you're not going to do other stuff because that's just a way of life and business that there's other things that happen and other things you need to focus on as well. But these are the three things that really matter. So forget this notion that it's like nothing else matter. That's not the case, but these are the things that really matter. So do they become decision tools? For example, when we have to invest money somewhere and therefore not somewhere else, can you use it in that way as a decision aid? Absolutely. Basically, it becomes your strategy, right? It's just a simple way of talking about the strategy. Of course. Yeah. It's a tool of prioritizing and saying, this is what we're mainly going to do. Therefore, we're going to invest in these areas or spend most of our time on these things. It doesn't mean that there's not other things that come in, but you don't need to talk so much about them. You just do them, fix it. When along your journey of leadership, did you make a choice about something to do or not do that didn't work out as well as the big three did? I don't know if it's specifically a decision, but I've definitely been put in positions where I wasn't particularly good. So at the time I was an OD director for Mars in Europe. It was organizational development and design. And I was an individual contributor doing a lot of organizational design and managed restructuring. It's, and I was really not very good at it. I realized at the time that I'm not good on my own. I'm good in a team and I'm good at leading teams, but being by myself as an individual consultant almost, I was horrible. Of course, that's exactly what I do. <laughs> But that's interesting. So teams and teamwork, you feel like that's your milieu where you really do well. Was there a time leading a team where you did something that you look back on and shake your head and go, man, I wish I hadn't done that. Let's assume you learned a valuable lesson from it. Are there things you look back on and think, if I could do it again, I might make a different choice? Yeah. One situation that comes to mind where I was leading a team in Mars Pit Care, North America, and I just throw this team like I had all the answers. I was giving everybody direction. I didn't have great people on the team, or at least I didn't get the best out of them because I was giving them direction. I had all the answers and they just needed to go and do. It suddenly occurred to me that that didn't work. They were very unhappy and it was chaotic and we didn't achieve anything. We had lots of uh, conflict. And I suddenly realized that the role of the leader wasn't to have the answer. The role of the leader was to bring people together 
to create the capacity for us to create change in the company. And my role was to bring the right people together and create an environment of trust where people could be at their best. And then they had the answers or we had them together. That's how I've tried to lead ever since. Bringing a team together with the right competences and then you build capability, right? You build a team that has an ability to affect or impact the organization and enable a strategy or has the capacity to do that. It will have a positive impact on the organization versus the leader coming up with a lot of work streams or a lot of actions and decisions, etc. I think it's much more powerful to create the atmosphere where people feel trusted and comfortable enough to use their brains and intelligence and they come up with solutions that are the right ones for the organization. Creating the capacity for the organization to change. Can I assume that you then think that as an HR person, that HR has that as part of its role to be an agent of change or a source of change for organizations? Absolutely. I have no doubt that that's the role of HR. Epe Müller-Mörsk, which was a, a quite old-fashioned shipping company that has been incredibly successful, but was stuck in a situation where the share price hasn't appreciated in a decade in a very difficult you know, capital-intensive industry. My job as head of HR and my team's job is to create the conditions for change. And that's in many different aspects. I see myself and my team as absolutely responsible for the results of the company. And if we're stuck, our job is to enable that we get unstuck. Change is considered a discipline, right? There are people who do change management. Do you have generalists in your team as well as specialists? Yeah, sure. And you hold everybody equally responsible for being agents of change, even if they're a generalist? Yes, for sure. I think we all have to anchor ourselves in the success of the enterprise, but also in the strategy and do our work in a way that it it slowly but surely moves the co corporation or the organization, which is then made up of individuals, of course, or teams, moves it in the direction of where we want to go. That's everybody's responsibility. Speaking of change, COVID, lockdowns, pandemic, etc. How have you adapted? What have you learned about yourself, about leading teams in the face of this pandemic? We have 750, 780 HR people across the world. And in my own direct team, I have a colleague in Colorado, one in Spain. And so it was already a remote team. Right. But still, I think I have probably learned to be even better at proactively following up with people and checking in with them, checking in with people individually, but also as a team doing ch team check-ins on how we're doing mentally, etc. But I also would say that I have always worked from home personally a lot okay. and worked remotely a lot and worked with people that were remote. So I don't think it is, it is significantly different. You said a little while ago that you felt you do better as a part of a team and you have a, an affinity for and probably a talent for leading teams. What is it about you being a part of a team as well as leading a team that has caused you to feel that that is where you are most effective? I think my talent or my main competence is bringing the best out of people making people believe that they have the answer. And that I'm much more comfortable doing that than having the answer myself. <laughs> and let me give you an example. Yeah, please. I was asked to be an interim general manager for the uh, Mars's North American pet food division, which is a $5 billion, $4.5 billion business. And I did it for like, I think, 14 months. 
And this was a business that was in dire straits. I mean, really, really in trouble. Got the position there. I was asked in January and I was asked on a Sunday night. I, it was announced Monday morning. The CEO was asked to leave. And then I'm announced, uh, I'm the head of HR, I'm announced as the new interim CEO. On Tuesday, everybody asks me for the solution. What do we do to this catastrophe we're in? With, with, we're declining by 6% in revenue, et cetera. And I'm like, last Friday, I was the head of HR and nobody asked me. <laughs> and now it's Tuesday, four days later, and everybody asked me to have the answer, which makes no sense. And it says something about the people who asked me to some extent. I got really shocked about this and it made me nervous because I really didn't know what to do. But after a few days, I decided that my job was to get the organization to believe that we had the answer in-house. We didn't need anybody to come and tell us the answer. The answer wasn't with me. The answer wasn't with the management team, but it was collectively somewhere in the organization. And we created a small project team of people. For example, we took the, one of the lowest level sales planners as part of the team because the sales number, the forecast number was a political number that wasn't true, right? It was just a, and, and I wanted the truth. But then there was a sales director, there was a marketing head and, and, and some researchers, et cetera. And they worked for four or five weeks on coming up with analysis and some solutions. And then we decided on a strategy. We took 16 brands to focus on five. I wanted three, but I couldn't get it to three. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't get your magic three. Okay. We called it drive five. Okay. And, um, and it became super successful. But my point was, Everybody was looking to me and I knew I hadn't a clue what to do, right? But I did know that I had this talent of getting people to believe that we knew what to do as a, as a team. You know, 700 people in the office and people got super excited about this process and we turned it around. Was there anybody who influenced that thought? Did you have a mentor or a great leader you worked with once who role modeled that for you? Or is it just you're in the situation and pondering exactly how to respond and it popped into your brain? Ah, Carlo, that's a good question because I know exactly what happened. I drove, this is Tuesday, I was, when people, all people came and asked me, you know, to what the, what the answer was. They wanted me to sit in the CEO's seat to show that somebody was in charge. And I like, I thought it was crazy. They wanted you to leave your yes. seat at your desk in the cluster of HR people and mm -hmm. move over to where the management team sat. In the I, always, I, always, I sat in the management team circle. You know, at Mars, it was open, open, uh, open space office. So I was sitting, but there was, but, but then the CEO, he had left, of course, they wanted me to sit in his seat. Literally. Yeah, literally. And I thought it was just nonsense, all this, but it just showed me the psyche of the organization and the fear and they were looking for solutions and leadership and everybody were but i thought we needed almost the opposite right so when i got home that tuesday night i was scared and i didn't sleep well next morning i drive back to the office and i park at the parking lot at eight o'clock in the morning and i look at this big building with 700 people in and i can't go in there i'm frozen really i cannot i'm paralyzed i cannot i'm so frightened of this thing because everybody were looking to me for the solutions and I didn't have them. I just hadn't a clue what to do. And then I called a headhunter in New York that I knew and a lady in her like late sixties and told her the story that I'm sitting here in front of the office. I think I'm going to call uh, my boss in Europe and tell him that, uh, and McLean and tell him that I can't do this and they have the wrong guy and all that. So after like an hour's discussion with her, she asks me to tell her what the leader that 
can solve this looks like and how this leader acts. And I described it for her. What, what the, I described what the business needed, what the organization needed. Somebody that could come in and facilitate this and get people to believe that this, they had the answers and because I thought the expertise were in the house and blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, classical trick. She asked me if I can act this person. My response is, I think I can. And I walk in and I act this person, which was probably myself and just out of with, you know. Yeah. I gathered everybody for a town hall that day, that morning, on Wednesday morning. And the first thing I did was to tell people that you need to stop asking me for the solution because I don't have it. And it doesn't matter how many times you ask me, but we have it together. We're going to find the wisdom here. And we did. <laughs> what a great story. And how interesting that it was a headhunter who was able to hear you and then ask that wonderful question. Yeah, that's fantastic. What would that leader look like? Which means basically we all have it in us, right? I mean, it's mentally, the whole thing is pure mentally. So that's such a great example of one person having an impact with the mere asking of a question. Are there other leaders who have influenced your thinking and your philosophy of leadership? I think I had a session in Austria, in Vienna, Austria, with Linda Gratton from London Business School, who's basically, at the time, she was a bit of an iconic uh, professor in HR. And she uh, was, was teaching a group of maybe 30, 40 people. And it really, really shaped my way of looking at HR. And I have used the principles of her thinking ever since. Her main themes were around, first of all, that an organization is systemic. Everything is linked. And we sometimes think we can impact one thing, but we need to impact multiple things at the same time. And then we can impact a system. We have, you have to change the system. The other thing was this whole concept of moving an organization from the cycle of despair to the cycle of hope. And doing the topic was HR and that was yes. within it? Yes. Wow. Yes. And, the, and, and then moving people from the cycle of despair to cycle of hope and doing it by building trust in an organization. And this is exactly the principle I've used at Musk. I think a lot about trust because I have encountered a lot of bad thinking on the subject. And I think there we have to consider it when we're building teams and organizations, and there are more effective ways to build trust and there are less effective ways. So for example, gathering everybody in a town hall and saying, everybody, we're going to do a trust fall now, find a partner, stand behind them, and we're going to build trust through that. Or we're going to build trust through, um, I don't know, going out on a ropes course. Um, those are fun things to do and they can help you feel better in relationship but they don't necessarily build organizational trust in my experience. Well, first of all, I, I use my onboarding, uh, actually even the interview process, but also the onboarding as a way to build uh, a hypothesis of what the organization needed in terms of um, to change and, and to get some inspiration and ideas about what I believe was strength and what were some weaknesses, et cetera. And also what did I think the level of trust was in the, in the organization? Uh, which is more intuitive than anything else. We basically focused on five, six areas to, um, to build trust. The first one was to make sure we had a really, really clear strategy and engaging strategy that people understand. Because people, in order to have trust, you have to have people to be, anch be anchored uh, in the future uh, and in, a, in an, ex an exciting future somehow. You've got to believe in some hope, right? You've got to believe that, that I'm, I'm working for something that makes sense. 
Uh, and so that was the first thing. And the second thing was we, we then talked about creating communication. So I work with the communications team here, the corporate communication team to start communicating to people in an adult to adult way. So instead of having like a, a, a very, a organizations often become very parent child focused. Uh, you, you don't want to say the truth because you're worried that people can't handle the truth. So you come up with all sorts of blah, blah, blah. And uh, you want to be able to talk about the sweet and the sour. Uh, and at home, we can handle the sweet and the sour, right? We have a death and we have a, a birth and we have uh, all sorts of different things, uh, positive and negative, and we can handle it. And we can also handle it at work. Even restructuring people can handle it. What they can't handle is to get just told a little bit. Three, we talked about creating line managers, making sure that the line managers are people managers and the responsibility of a people manager is to manage people. <laughs> and if you can't manage people, you can't be a people manager. Managing people is a responsibility and a privilege. And it's not just some kind of entitlement that you have. So we introduced Gallup Q12 to measure the quality of line managers and give them a tool to work with their teams and bring them all up at a higher level. And um, then we worked on no triangulation where people, we don't, we, we don't accept that you go direct basically to each other. You don't go and talk about somebody else in third person, uh, which creates, which is, which is poison in an organization when people start triangulating. We um, have worked a lot on also right people in right boxes, performance managing people, making sure the right people are in the right roles. And yeah, a number of things like that. But we've done also what I call a whole range of iconic moves on the culture to send a signal to uh, the organization that um, we're empowering them, we're treating them as adults. I'll give you a small, tiny example, which is, uh, it was a very, very formal dress code here with suit and tie and white shirts and black, black shoes and black belt. I mean, just written up in detail, women were not allowed to have their arms. And I mean, it's just ridiculous. And that is not a way of treating adults, right? I mean, adults can figure out what to put, put on in the morning. You don't need to put the policy. So we took a, but, you, but you can assume that 99% can do it and you don't need to design anything for the 1%. So we took the dress code away and people were super confused, right? But as part of the confusion, they also understood that times are different and I'm actually empowered to do these things myself and be responsible. And it, it was absolutely no problem and people just loved it. Okay, so we have to have a business strategy, a clear one, and that creates hope and trust. I didn't hear any trust falls in there or any, any ropes courses. I heard truth, tell people the truth, manage people like adults. Don't just manage the work, manage the people and tell the truth, go direct to people. Don't be political, go behind people's back. Pretty straightforward. But we are pretty straightforward people, right? We are pretty simple, all of us. <laughs> we complicate things and I think in HR, we complicate things a lot. HR has become known for imposing processes on people and compliance, right? Big deal with compliance. We forget the dynamic and strategic role of the people function. Both. Thank you so much. This has been great. Some wonderful <laughs> stories. I'll never forget the one about the headhunter in the parking lot. That I will take with me forever. That one is sticky. I want to close with a question I pull from a deck of cards that I purchased recently called Actually Curious. And they're provocative questions you ask. Teams might use them to get to know each other better. You might use them at a virtual cocktail party. Here's what I want to ask you from that deck. What does a life well-lived mean to you? 
Hmm. I think it means to have some kind of purpose in, in my family, create a good family that has good fun, uh, have some purpose at work, where do something that's meaningful. I, I find what I do extremely meaningful. I, I impact people every single day. Uh, and if I do it well, I do it positively. And then I think impacting also positively good friends. So that's it for me. Friends, family, and meaningful work. It does get a little harder as you get older, right? Because uh, kids grow up and all that. So it changes maybe a little bit. But um, I think also the purpose, is, the purpose of life is to be as happy as you can somehow. Yes, I think you're right. And these days that can be difficult. But this last 30 minutes or so has been just delightful. And thank you, Wolf, for sharing your story and your views. Gratitude, my friend. Thank you. And thanks for what you do. And thanks for allowing me to uh, tell a story or two. <laughs> and thank you to my listeners. And I look forward to hearing from you and to our next podcast together. Hi, I'm Janet Aldrich, producer and director of Teaming with Ideas. Thanks for listening. And thank you, John Wallerick, for the music. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, review, and share. Want more? Visit Carlos's blog, Teaming with Ideas, at carlosvdapena.com. Questions? Click on the Contact Carlos button, and we'll answer promptly. To be interviewed on the Teaming with Ideas podcast, visit carlosvdapena.com forward slash podcast dash contact and complete the questionnaire. Thanks again for listening and keep on teeming with ideas.